Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. Coming up on today's show, Megan and Harry are releasing a book, but do the headlines tell the real story? Plus, Jamila Jamil's Instagram social experiment. Why do women hate women so much and what does it say about internalised misogyny? First, Michelle, I will ask you two questions, I think. I will ask you about your week to start because something actually did happen to you this week. It did. Something so great happened to me. We picked up our puppy on Friday morning at 7am and it has been almost revolutionary for my life right now. I think I really needed it. I've been struggling a lot with mental health stuff for the past couple of weeks. So to have this beautiful, gorgeous, fluffy, playful thing be brought into my life has been such a blessing. And I can't tell you that. I actually haven't told you this part. The night before we picked up Benji, who was a cavoodle for anyone wondering, Mitch and I were lying in bed and we could not sleep. It literally felt like we were eight-year-olds on Christmas Eve. We could not sleep. We were so excited. We kept like turning to each other and be like, oh my God, we're going to get a puppy. And it was just such a like joyful kid-like experience. I have seen a lot of people in my newsfeed get a puppy in this time. Like I would love to know whether that is a an accurate stat or if it's just anecdotal from me. I want to know though, as someone who's never had a dog or a puppy, do you ever get concerned that you're going to step on it or like not see it? Uh, yeah, all the time because they are so, so small. I haven't yet, but with dogs in the past, sometimes you will accidentally trot on their foot, but they always let you know. Like if you've hurt them, they'll let you know and they're typically fine. Like they'll just yelp or whatever. I do want to touch on, there are probably a lot of people getting puppies right now. Mitch and I have planned to get a dog for so long. I do worry a little bit when people rush into a decision like this mm. because it is such a serious thing and it is so much energy and an investment of time. So if you want to get a dog, absolutely do that. I would just advise nobody rushes into that decision because it's a little life and you want to give that life as much happiness as possible. And it's a massive decision that's going to span for over a decade, hopefully. So really think about it before you go into it. I am so thrilled and I'm so excited. What is your conversation starter for me? I certainly have a conversation starter for you today, Michelle. I want to know what is something that everyone looks stupid doing? Ooh, that is a hard one. Can I link it in to Benji? Because it's just come to me then. (laughs) What? I think 
I've realized that I look so dumb taking selfies because in the background of one of Mitch's videos today, I was like snapping myself with the dog and you look like such an idiot when you take selfies of yourself. Do you think just to extend on the dog theme, people also always look stupid when they're talking to dogs because people invariably put like a baby voice on? Well, Mitch and I were sending you and Ollie videos of Benji and we were kind of embarrassed as soon as we pressed send because we realized we had our dog voices on and our dog voices for anyone wondering sound a lot like this. Oh, yeah. They always go high. The inflection's always high. Oh, my God. It's going to get worse and worse. It's only just begun. I know. I do have a recommendation this week. I forgot to give this recommendation last week. I got too caught up in Margot Robbie hype. I want to recommend The Briefing, which is a new podcast by Podcast One Australia. It has Tom Tilly at the helm. It's a daily news podcast but it is a little bit different. I've told everyone before on this podcast that I love the squeeze and I still love the squeeze. I listen to both. The briefing is slightly different in that they kind of give you three top headlines that you need to be across from international news. And then they do a deep dive on something that's really interesting for the final 10 or so minutes. Tom Tilly also has the best lineup of co-hosts, Annika Smethurst, who is an incredible award-winning journalist, Jan Fran and Jamila Rizvi, two women we've had on Shameless In Conversations before. I just think that's such a kick lineup and for a podcast that has been running for two weeks it is so professional and well done and every episode I listen to I'm like I wish it went for 10 minutes longer I love it to get myself across the news every day yeah I've been listening to it so much I reckon I've been listening to almost every episode every morning because I really miss Tom Tilly on hack and having his sort of he has a very unique style doesn't he it's so casual and so chill you can just imagine him like sitting on a couch with his like feet kicked up doing this with a mic in hand. That's how it sounds, but it is so great. I've been listening to it too. And I also back that recommendation. Well, he's so casual, but he's so clever. It's like you're expecting your mate just to like crack open a beer and then he hits you with some real wisdom. Anyway, tell me about you. I'm going to hit you with the same conversation starter. What is something that everyone looks stupid doing? Well, I may have cheated because this was my question. I went on to Reddit and got Reddit to crowdsource me some funny answers. And some of them were really, really Yes. So I've got chasing a loose table tennis ball. Oh my God, yes. There is a table tennis table in our office. We obviously haven't been there since the restrictions came into play. But every time I see these two guys playing table tennis, I feel so awkward. Like I never know if I have to go chase the ball for them. If they're going to go do that, the balls are so light. You feel like you can never get them on the first time. You always fumble at least once. And they keep bouncing. They always keep bouncing away from you. So that was one. Another one that everybody always looks stupid doing is running with a backpack, particularly when it has books in it and you're like jumping up and down. Another one that I had, which was on your theme, is not just taking a selfie, Mish, but taking a selfie on an iPad. It's a pretty stupid looking thing to do. Yes. The one you said just reminded me then, running with a backpack, running to get a train that is about to depart and you miss out. Like running for public transport or running for a plane is so embarrassing and it makes you look so silly. I've done it. I'm not telling anyone not to do it. I've done it so many times. But I used to have a rule where I was like, I'm never, ever running for public transport. Like I would prefer to be late to something than run to catch a tram or a train. In my old age, somehow I don't really care anymore and I'm running for every (laughs) bit of public transport. Not that I'm catching it much at all anymore but when I was I just don't care but you do look stupid and the last one was that little jog you do after tripping on something or nothing you know when you do like a tiny little trip and then you kind of like try to steady yourself by pretending that nothing happened which happens to me all the time what meeting was it where we were about to walk into something and you had 
stacked it and dropped an entire box of stuff on our way in. And the look on your face was just full of shame. Like for a podcast called Shameless, you were not shameless that day. You were filled with regret as soon as you tripped. And you trip often. For a little person, you trip often. I trip all – yeah, and you'd think I wouldn't because I'm closer to the ground. But (laughs) I – that wasn't just a little embarrassing trip. That was like a stack. Like I had a box and it flung and I was like hands on the ground, a whole body on the ground. Anyway, that is for another time, my tripping chronicles. (laughs) My recommendation very quick. Quickly before we move on, Mish, is a television show on Stan that I hadn't actually heard of. It was produced at the end of last year and it is called The Loudest Voice. I watched Bombshell last weekend, the movie with Margot Robbie, Nicole Kidman, Charlize Theron, and really liked it. And as I was doing a bit of Googling after watching the movie about the true story of Roger Ailes and the rise of Fox News and also the allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct leveled at him before he died, I realized that there was a television series produced with Russell Crowe, Naomi Watts, Sienna Miller on stand. Really? Part series. It is so good. It is really good. Because it starts with the beginning of Fox News. And I think Fox News plays such a crucial role in our political discourse at the moment worldwide, I would say globally particularly in America, and to see how that was born and how its political slant was created. And I think later, I'm halfway through the series, the allegations of sexual abuse levelled at Roger Ailes will kind of surface and that will become a core part of the storyline. But at the moment, it's about the creation of that network and it is it is so interesting. I couldn't recommend it more. I think you'd really like it. Do you think people who have a real interest in the media will like it? Do you think everyone listening, it'll be for them? Or do you think it is really tailored to those who have a vested interest in media? No, I think it can kind of cross interests because it has that Me Too slant as well. The allegations levelled at Roger Ailes were levelled at him well before the Me Too movement. So looking Mm. at how that came to be would be very interesting for a lot of people too. I also think if you're politically inclined, it's really interesting to see how much control Fox News has over political discourse in the US. I think there are a few reasons you could be interested in the show. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's time to move on, Zara. And it's been a while since we discussed Meghan Markle and old mate Prince Harry. They are back in the headlines for a few reasons. Obviously, Meghan Markle's defamation case against Associated Newspapers is currently doing the rounds. Like, There's a lot coming out about that. But also, it has been leaked recently by the Daily Mail that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are writing and releasing a book. Yeah, so it's really interesting to me, and especially that phrasing, writing and releasing a book, because that is the headline that's travelled far and wide this week, but it's not actually accurate. And I think this is the biggest gripe I've got with the story. The story is, in fact, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are cooperating with a biography written about them. And I think that's a very, very different thing to what a lot of the headlines are saying, right? Yeah, well, it's two journalists that they have a very friendly relationship with. So, of course, they were going to say yes. Do you have the names in front of you, Zara? One is the royal editor of Harper's Bazaar. Yes. So, the royal editor of Harper's Bazaar, Omid Scobie, is really close with Meghan Markle and has been for quite a few years now and is kind of one of the main journalists on the royal circuit that often paints a pretty sympathetic portrayal of Markle. The other one is Carolyn Durand, and both of them, like we say, work in the British media, but often for US-targeted publications. And I think that's a really interesting thing to note, that these journalists are British, but they write for US publications primarily. And I think it becomes very obvious then who Meghan Markle and Prince Harry want to target with this biography. Yeah, I don't find it surprising that they are targeting an American population over a British one. I do wonder what you think about this. I think in British culture, they are so 
widely hated, which I think is ridiculous personally because royal sentiment is so strong. There are so many who staunchly believe in the monarchy. But I do feel like in the US and in other countries, particularly in Australia, we are more receptive to Meghan and Harry. We love the modernity that they've brought to the institution of the palace. And I think we are far more receptive to their struggles than what the British public and tabloids are. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to the fact that we don't have the tabloids here like the British people do. Like we don't have the same exposure. I know those newspapers are online, but we're kind of a little bit shielded from all that very negative press. A couple of things on this book. So it was reportedly due out in June and it has been pushed back to August because of COVID-19. Omid Scobie, like we said, writes for Harper's Bazaar and is a Good Morning America correspondent. He's covered Meghan Markle for years. He was one of only two journos granted access, exclusive access to her last private event as a member of the royal family in March. And according to the Mail on Sunday, Meghan and Harry sat down for interviews with Durand and Scobie before they announced their exit in January. So I think there's a lot that's been going on behind the surface for a really long time here. It's not just like this was dropped now, they've left the monarchy and decided to write a tell-all book, which is how the headlines are framing it. One thing that has really irked me about the commentary around this book is that it is tone deaf to release a book in the midst of a global pandemic. I just don't agree with that. You could take that line with any form of content that isn't about COVID-19. We need sweet release. We need relief from what's going on in the world. What's stopping these two writers and Meghan and Harry telling their story? Why should they not tell it now? It's as important and relevant now as ever, particularly when they're being dragged through the media day after day. I don't begrudge them at all for wanting to release this in August, particularly given they've already pushed it back to be sensitive. Well, and I think initially when I read the headlines, I was annoyed because I didn't have the full context. And I think that is what I get annoyed about with the news cycle at the moment is I originally heard this news when I was listening to commercial radio and the radio hosts were going back and forth ragging on Meghan and Harry for releasing this book in the middle of the pandemic for being insensitive and tone deaf. And so I kind of naturally adopted that line of thought thinking if they have just agreed now to write a book and release it in the next few months, and that is very tone deaf. However, when you actually do the digging and, you know, dig into the context around the release of this book, it is not them just deciding to write it themselves. And I think if somebody has decided to write a biography of you, Mish, and you have just left the monarchy and have the opportunity to cooperate with that book, because it might actually give you a little bit of control over the message that the book sends, as if you wouldn't say yes, particularly given the state of their reputations at the moment. Yeah, and particularly given how well it worked for Harry's mother, Princess Diana. When she went through her divorce, she did the exact same thing. She had a biography written about her that she cooperated with. That book sold 7 million copies in 80 countries and it made the biographer a lot of money and I think writers should be earning money. I think it's an incredibly difficult industry to succeed in financially. And I don't understand why it's a negative thing that someone would be doing that. I think the subtlety of how we talk about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry is something that needs to be called out. Nine Honey is a website that makes a lot of advertising revenue off royal content. I think they often position themselves as a feminist website. But I was very surprised to read this I would call it snarky or snide comment in a Nine Honey article this week. It reads, Harry and Meghan said they plan to become financially independent of the royal family. However, a book about their time as royals could be seen to be cashing in on the link. Like, 
What do you mean cashing in on the link? This is their life. Why should they be ashamed of telling their story or feel like they can never tell it for money? Screw it. Like they've got to pay for security. They have to have a life. They've got a young son. Why is it being framed as cashing in on being royals? Well, if you're going to take that line of thought, they're going to be cashing in on being royals for the rest of their lives because they'll never be able to escape the royal title. There's also no guarantee that those two are making money for this. The value in them doing this project is not to make money off spilling secrets from the royal family. It's reframing the narrative around their exit and around their time in the royal family. That's the value for them. I would be surprised if they're not taking anything from it. I think you're right, Mish. Princess Diana did do this after her marriage with Prince Charles was in absolute turmoil in 1992. She gave interviews to Andrew Morton and, as you said, it resulted in the very revealing bestseller, Diana, her true story in her own words, which went a long way in building public sympathy for the princess. I mean, she was adored by the time that she died. And I think if they can see how this transformed her image after she exited the royal family, as if they wouldn't try to replicate that. Yeah, I think as well. I said this in an Instagram live that we did mid last week in that I think they're really brave. I am so surprised that they keep pushing back and pushing back and pushing back against this vitriol and this commentary that's coming towards them because I truly do believe the easier option would be to lie down and slink away and deal with things in private or in solitude for a while and pretend it's not happening. They're not doing that. They are vocally calling this stuff out. They are fighting the good fight. They're crusading against tabloid mentality and tabloid culture. And I think they do that. And I think they will continue to do that because in their hearts, they know the coverage is sexist and racist. And I think those two factors will mean they continue to push. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think, what is the point in leaving the royal family and leaving the monarchy, which is an institution that stifles you and doesn't let you have an opinion if you're not going to leave and actually act on the causes you care about and be vocal. I think leaving would be in vain. I did want to finish, Mish, with a comment, I guess, on the real cultural divide here. I think Britons are so well known for their stiff upper lip mentality. And in an interview that Megan did last year for a doco, she did say she'd very much struggled to adopt that stiff upper lip mentality and just push through because it doesn't come naturally. She grew up in America. And I think there is a real cultural divide between British people who think that that's the way that things should be done, that we should just be quiet and get on with things. And perhaps the rest of the world, particularly a country like America, who celebrate freedom of speech and opening up about what's on your mind so much more. You've called the Shameless Hotline. Please leave a message at the beep. Hi, girls. It's Amy here. I'm just calling into the hotline to say that until last week's segment, I didn't know that the matching tracksuit was a thing. But now here I am four days in and I'm waiting for two different sets to arrive. So my bank account officially hates you, but I still love you. And now it is time for the quick and dirty every week. We bring you a rough and tumble on the top five celebrity and pop culture stories to be hitting the news cycle. Zara McDonald, what have you got for me today? The first story, of course, this is the first story of the quick and dirty. Gigi Hadid confirms she's expecting her first child with Zayn Malik. That is from Vogue. Congratulations to the two. This is so exciting. She just recently turned 25. Some fans of Gigi suspect that her 25th birthday was also a bit of a hybrid with a baby shower. I'm not quite sure about that. I believe she's between four and five months pregnant. So it might be a bit early to have a baby shower then. But this is so exciting. The only sad aspect of this story is that 
the news was leaked through tabloids. I wish that Gigi and Zayn had the opportunity to tell the world in their own words, in their own way, that they're expecting a baby. I know. I think it was really disappointing. And she expressed that when she formally announced the news on Jimmy Fallon. She said, look, it's a shame that we weren't able to announce the news ourselves because tabloids got to it first. But they do seem really stoked. They seem very happy. And I don't know, kind of wholesome news to come out of the week. Absolutely. What's your second story? Number two, Britney Spears just casually revealed that she burnt down her home gym. That is from Junkie. Did you see this story around? I only saw it because you put it in our Slack window and I was like, excuse me. I didn't read it. What happened? Did you watch the video? No. Okay. I'm going to insert the audio here. Hi guys, I'm in my gym right now. I haven't been in here for like six months because I burnt my gym down, unfortunately. Um, I had two candles and yeah, one thing led to another and I burned it down. No, that reminds me of the Friends episode where Phoebe and Rachel are fighting over who caused the apartment fire. I think it was Phoebe's scented candle or Rachel's hair straightener. It is such a fear of mine. Every time I use a hair straightener, I leave the house and I'm racked with anxiety. No matter how many times I check that it is off at the wall and off on the bloody device itself, I still convince myself that maybe it's going to torch everything I love. Yeah, no, I was exactly the same. When I used to live at home, every time I straightened my hair, I used to text my entire family's group chat, forcing someone who's still at home to go upstairs and check. There's a, a recommendation for people who are anxious about these kinds of things to take a photo of the PowerPoint before you leave the house so that you don't kind of convince <sighs> yourself that you didn't turn it off. And that's for appliances generally. But that is this is a core reason I never use candles and I love scented candles, but I have a fear that I'm never going to turn them off so I can't use them. I had a fear and I don't know if this is totally irrational. I don't know if anyone's a fire expert who's listening to this. I don't use scented candles on my wooden bookshelf because I'm worried that somehow the smoke or something would like set the bookshelf on fire. But that's kind of ridiculous. The shelves are that far apart. Surely a a little scented candle is not going to do any damage. But you are very close to books. Like... Like it is a bit of a fun habit. I'm the wrong person to ask because I err on the side of caution to the point where I don't actually turn them on. (laughs) Scented candle mishaps. Please come and share them in our Facebook group. If you've had one, I want to see photos. Story number three, TV host busted cheating after nude gaff during live interview. That is from the Courier Mail. Michelle, did you see this story around? I did see this story. And I don't know if I'm evil or rotten inside, but videos and content of people being caught cheating is my favorite kind of content. I just feel like it's such sweet, sweet justice for it to be aired so publicly. Like, yeah, maybe if I was a better person, I'd feel sorry for this TV host who was busted with a naked woman who was not his girlfriend in the frame of his online interview. However, I kind of feel like he got what was coming to him. It is like karma in real time, isn't it, watching it happen? So the reporter was a Spanish reporter. His name was Alfonso Merlos, and he was, as you say, Mish, doing I love that you like, his name was. I'm like, he's still, oh. he's still in that. <laughs> rest, rest in peace, Alfonso. I think you'd want, to be, <laughs> you'd want to be a bit of a ghost for a while, wouldn't you? And so what happened is as he was talking, a partially clothed woman walked pretty far in the background without him noticing. So he didn't know this had happened while he was on the interview. And viewers noticed that it wasn't his girlfriend. His girlfriend was a former Big Brother star in Spain, so quite well known, and they realized that they didn't look the same. The woman in the shot was later identified as a fellow journalist. What is interesting is he has later said, oh, it's fine, me and my girlfriend had broken up anyway. I mean, it's still an unfortunate story, but we weren't together. The girlfriend has said, Mm. no, 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 we were still (laughs) together. We're absolutely still together. He was cheating. (sighs) I'm just going to swear for a bit. Annabelle just blurs out. What a f- 
quit. Like, how can you be so dumb to come out and say we weren't together when obviously your girlfriend is going to counteract that? Like, what woman who has been screwed over by her male partner or any partner is going to just lie down like a doormat and be like, you're right, we'll just go with this lie that you did nothing wrong? Let's be graceful and quiet. Yeah, no way. No, thanks. Story number four, cosmetic surgery conundrum. Is it okay to speculate about Jared Kushner and Botox? That is from The Guardian's Hadley Freeman. It was an op-ed this week that snuck into the quick and dirty mish. Yeah, I'm annoyed about it. I love Hadley Freeman's writing. I think she is probably one of my favorite writers. And normally when she writes opinion pieces about celebrity and pop culture, I find myself nodding along. This was an exception to that though. So Hadley Freeman asked in her op-ed, the haunted doll look of Donald Trump's son-in-law has attracted a lot of attention. When people comment on famous women and surgery, there is often backlash, but should the same apply here? And I mean, I'm interested in your interpretation of what she wrote, Zara, but my interpretation was that Hadley Freeman said, I don't like Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. I find it novel given that men account for 10% of plastic surgery in the US. And I think it's easy to talk about. She also had a couple of quite pointed comments about his appearance in general, especially the haunted doll look. I know that that wasn't her comment originally, but I think to regurgitate it is nasty. And my gut reaction to anything like this is it's never a good idea to talk about people's appearances in such a nasty vitriolic way. I don't find it funny. I don't think it's helpful. I find it very infuriating when the far left or the left, in fact, choose to comment on Donald Trump's appearance, whether that's his hair, his fake tan or his hands. I think it's distractionary. I think even a couple of years ago, we reshared a meme about Donald Trump's skin color and how it looked like cakey foundation. And I really regret that. I think as I've grown and as I've matured, which of course we're going to do across this podcast, we began it when we were 23, I'm now 26. I regret that. I don't think there's ever an excuse to be nasty about someone's appearance, no matter how much you disagree with their politics. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I think in the past, I've kind of grown a lot with this and I've probably been kind of hypocritical in the past and been like, we can't comment on some people's faces, but then joked about what Donald Trump looks like. I do agree with you. I think it's probably not that healthy for us to be commenting on Jared Kushner's face, because if we comment on Jared Kushner's face, does that mean we can comment on everybody else's face who's ever in the public eye? To be honest, I think it also trivializes these kinds of men. I think what Jared Kushner and Donald Trump could do to the world is far more serious than what they do or don't do to their faces. And I think the more we talk about their appearance, the less space and energy we're giving to all the things they're doing to vulnerable people. Story number five, ranking the ungodly amount of sex scenes in normal people from least to most horny. That is from Pedestrian TV. Of course, it's from Pedestrian. Mish, how good is normal people? I'm only three episodes in, so please don't spoil it, even though I've read the book, but you know. I binged it all, of course. I couldn't believe it was 12 episodes. Now, we've spoken about Normal People for so long because it is one of our all-time favourite books. It's written by Sally Rooney, and when it came out a couple of years ago, you and I were fanatical about it. I'm equally fanatical about this stand series. Before I say anything else and before we weigh in on the sex scenes and the horniness of it all, I do want to just disclose there are some ads for Normal People currently running on Shameless episodes. This is absolutely not sponsored in any way. We genuinely love the show, and we always disclose when something is a sponsored partnership. This is not that. I just genuinely want to talk about normal people and lots of you asked for it in the group as well. Yeah, and if you actually do go back to our back catalogue and listen to our old episodes talking about normal people, you will know we do love the book. This show, I have to say, I read criticism early on that the characters were a bit too hot, that if you have read the book, you would know they're not painted as particularly hot people. And I went into the show before I'd watched it being like, oh, f- 
the casting. That's so annoying. Maybe they shouldn't have been cast so hot. And yet I turned on the television series and I was like, oh, this is just a beautiful, beautiful adaption of a book. I couldn't care less about any of the criticism. I just love it so much. It lives up to the book. It lives up to the book. And I didn't think it was possible because that book is a work of art. And this show, which I know not everyone loves, I don't think anyone will ever love anything, but it did it so much justice. I think it was quiet. I think it was clever. I think it was brilliant. And I think it really explored the complexity that comes with loneliness and sexual expression and mental health. And I think this kind of depiction of the young millennial experience is so bang on. I also have to say, unfortunately, Jock Zonfrilo has been bumped as head of my hall pass and it is now Connell from Normal People. It's just a rotating roster. He is amazing anyway. Poor Jock. Poor Jock only got a couple of weeks in. He I know. didn't get anything. I know. Sa- Maybe- Sam Pang was your hall pass for like three years. Jock Zonfrilo gets two weeks and now it's Connell from Normal People. I've got to admit, though, Connell... It's just, what is it about him? Is it is it his shoulders? I love his shoulders. Yep. It's the shoulders and the Irish accent. Oh, the Irish accent. You know how we've been talking about the plus or minus 10% rule? The Irish accent automatically plus 10% for anything, any kind of content. If there is an Irish accent involved, it is 10% better instantaneously. Talk to me about the sex scenes because if you haven't seen Normal People, it is borderline pornographic in some of the episodes well i'm only up to episode three so it's i don't think it's it doesn't start with the sex to its credit there is like a little bit of sexiness but i'm not yet at the point where i'm like whoa i'm watching porn mitch walked in a couple of times and he's like what are you watching is this porn and i was like no no just people who like having sex a lot i also really liked that for all the sex scenes that we saw We saw a lot of Marianne being fully naked, and I mean fully naked in that there was no covering of anything going on. We saw the exact same for Connell. So it wasn't like a woman's breasts were exposed. We got everything from both sides and that Connell's penis was on display in more than one scene. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I just think that's an interesting move forward because I think historically women have been expected to take their clothes off and bear all for the small screen, and the same hasn't always been expected for men. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm really, I mean, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of it. I was watching on my lunch break the other day at my kitchen table and I realized that my housemates were walking around and I was kind of nervous that like a crazy sex scene was going to come on the TV and then I'd have to explain it and then it would just get a little bit awkward. So I just closed it and sat on Facebook instead. So it is pretty sexy. Be careful in the middle and towards the end. There are some intense sex scenes where I would feel like I would be very flushed if a parent, for example, if you live at home, please don't watch this with your parents. I, I will try to save you as much as I can. Reserve this for your partner or your sister or something. This is not appropriate for all kinds of family members to be watching together. Hey, that's all I've got for you for The Quick and Daddy. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, the Jamila Jamil Instagram post that has uncovered an uncomfortable truth about women and internalised misogyny. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Okay, guys, bear with me. This one is a little bit of a roller coaster. This week, the Good Place actress Jamila Jamil noticed a celebrity news headline that irked her. The article, published by MoneyWise, was titled 19 Celebrities Who Got Backlash for Their COVID-19 Posts, with a featured image that was a split picture between Ellen DeGeneres looking angry and Jamila Jamil looking, well, 
unhinged. But there was a twist. While the publication chose Jamil's photo because they knew it would drive traffic and clicks, Jamila Jamil hasn't actually said anything controversial about COVID-19, and she's not on the list, except for one mention at number nine, where a comedian made an offensive joke at her expense. The 34-year-old let rip, writing, this is a specific media tactic used on women to overexpose them, set them up, lie about them, make them seem annoying and hysterical so that you will start to hate them. She continued, this got me thinking about every time I've ever thought, I don't know why I just don't like her. I find her annoying about a woman in the media. If it's because I've been subliminally poisoned against her. Jamil then asked her followers to weigh in on her Instagram post, prompting them to examine their own intense and unfair criticism of other women too. She asked, who is a woman in the media that you dislike and don't know why? The responses were so fascinating, Zara. We actually want to commit the rest of today's episode to exploring them. Yeah, I really loved her wording when she said, I just wondered if I'd just been poisoned against her by the media, because I think it happens to all of us. I think that no one is immune from feeling something to Towards another woman and feeling annoyed by them. And if you actually forced yourself to step back and wonder why you felt annoyed by them, you actually wouldn't have an answer. Like you really wouldn't have an answer. And I thought the way that she articulated it, particularly through the use of visuals, the visuals that were used to tell a story about women, photos we attached to stories about them, was a really important one for us to kind of unpack the way that the media does control the way we think towards women and feel towards women. Yeah, I have a story from my own time in the media that I'm quite ashamed of. But before I share that, I do want to share the names that came up in the comment section of Jamila Jamil's Instagram post. So 5,000 people commented about the women that they hate in the media and they have no idea why. And these were the most popular and common responses. Jennifer Lawrence, Megan Fox, Anne Hathaway, Blake Lively, Taylor Swift, the entire Kardashian family, Beyonce, Kristen Stewart, Camilla Cabello, Meghan Markle, Ariana Grande. Now, I'm not surprised by any of those names because even in our own Facebook group, we have people commenting on how much they hate these women. I remember the other day we had a Taylor Swift thread about what's your favorite Taylor Swift song? And I was really disappointed in a couple of listeners who commented how much they despise Taylor Swift. And I just thought it was so interesting that people would feel the need to tell us that, that why is that relevant that you hate Taylor Swift and why do you feel the need to put it on a thread where people are glowing about her achievements or glowing about her work and her art? I do want to share this story before we dive in because this is going to be a long segment and I don't want anyone to think that when Zara and I discuss it, we are excluding ourselves. I've absolutely been a perpetrator of internalized misogyny on other women and I feel really bad about it. When I was 22 and working at a women's digital media company, I was tasked with a story. I was asked to write about Chrissy Swan's latest career missteps, I guess, her latest rejections. Basically, Chrissy Swan, who if you're not from Australia or if you're not familiar with her, her is an incredibly successful radio personality and television personality who rose to fame after being on Big Brother in the early 2000s. And this entire story was about, I think she had two television shows cancelled in the space of about six months. And I was asked to write about that. The fact that Chrissy had had two shows that her name was attached to cancelled in a single year, despite the fact that she has one of the most impressive media careers in the country. That was the angle. Look at this woman who had both shows cancelled in one day. And I was also asked to put a photo on the piece that depicted Chrissy being sad. So I went through episodes of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is a reality show that she was recently on. And I screenshot 
shot a photo of her crying and I put that on the story. I don't know why I get so upset about that. I think I was 22 at the time. I was young and I didn't realize what I was doing in that I thought I was writing a news story, but I wasn't. I was writing a really hateful piece about a really successful woman and tearing her down. And even though my editor gave me that story, my editor praised me for putting that awful photo on it. I feel so bad for that. And I think to be honest, in the last week, I've had a huge epiphany about internalized misogyny and how it manifests online. So I just wanted to share that example because I feel awful about that four years later. And I'm not saying that Zara and I are not guilty of this because I think almost every woman is guilty of this in some way or another. Well, I'm much the same as you. I think I'd look back on many articles that I've written before that I thought were kind of straight pieces that weren't really full of much tone or full of much opinion. And yet it is the really small things that do the most damage. Like you say, like an image like that, or the fact that a, that a news story crafted around someone's failures that it doesn't actually have an opinion and doesn't actually have a tone does play into a narrative. It tells a story, doesn't it? And I would regret so much of not just what I've written on the internet, but also a lot of the thoughts that I've had. And when I'm not actually forced myself to unpack those, it reminds me a lot, Mish, of the world's treatment of Kieran Knightley. I remember listening to an episode of Awards Chatter, which is the Hollywood Reporter's podcast, and she spoke about how when she was 22, she had a full mental and nervous breakdown because the world hated her and she didn't know why. And I think if I looked back on when I was younger, I'd probably think, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't care much about Kieran Knightley. She kind of seems a bit scowly all the time. Like that just would have been my knee-jerk reaction and I probably wouldn't have unpacked why. On the Awards Chatter podcast, she said it was very confusing because you're getting all these nominations for all of these things, but press-wise, when I'm going into interviews, people are still saying everybody thinks you're shit or focusing on your looks or focusing on what's wrong with you. I was 19 and you can only hear the negative stuff. I felt pretty much like actually I didn't exist and I was this weird creature with this weird face that people seemed to respond to in quite an extreme way and I couldn't figure out any of it. I did have a mental breakdown at 22, so I took a year off and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because of all of that stuff. That is just the media and that is just a public conversation. Yeah, well, this is the thing, right? We can say it's just the media, but it's also a vicious, sickening cycle. In that I was probably given that story about Chrissy Swan and those reporters were probably given those stories about Kira Knightley because people know it will be clicked on. Mm. And that's also the problem. It's like a chicken and egg scenario. Those stories are created because women have been trained to be so intensely hypercritical of the women around them. I want to talk to you. I've done so much research on this myself this week because I think I've found it so interesting and I've found it so intriguing as to why women are so intensely critical of their peers and women in the public eye. I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of the Nikki Swift YouTube channel? I haven't. I've heard the name Nikki Swift, but I couldn't tell you. I couldn't pick her in a lineup. Right. So it is a YouTube channel that basically focuses on celebrity and pop culture news. They churn out at least three videos a day. They would make huge advertising revenue. They get millions and millions of streams on some of their videos. And basically the format is looking at different celebrities and scrutinizing them. And so often in my sidebar when I'm on YouTube watching, I don't know, a Sammy Robinson makeup tutorial, I have seen these videos and I click on them and I watch them all the time. So I went to the Nikki Swift YouTube channel because I think it's a good example of how we pick on women when we don't pick on men in the same way. So there is a series of YouTube videos that Nikki Swift does 
called People Can't Stand. So that phrase is used in every title. So, for example, 10 Reasons People Can't Stand Oprah Winfrey, 10 Reasons People Can't Stand Taylor Swift, 10 Reasons People Can't Stand Tom Cruise. So I actually analysed these videos. There were 35 of them in total over the last three years. And what I found is that of the 35 videos of the celebrities we supposedly can't stand with the reasons why, eight were male celebrities, 27 were female celebrities. When posting a hateful video about a man, Nikki Swift got 522,000 views on average. When she posted a hateful video about a woman, the views tripled. She gets 1.5 million views on average when a video picks apart a female celebrity and all the reasons we should hate her. That's a pretty astounding stat. Good maths, by the way, going back through that all. That's time consuming. But I think when you say, and we've kind of flipped this line out a few times, women hating women or women, I guess, not supporting women, I used to really despise that concept. I used to really, really despise a conversation where people would say, even women in the public eye would say, it's not men that I get hate from, it's women. And something about it, and I probably don't even have the words for it right now, used to annoy me because I thought it was bad for feminism for us to frame a conversation about sexism that way. I thought we can't make women the enemy in every conversation about sexism we have. What I guess I've learned by doing a bunch of research like you, Mish, and going back through studies is often it is women who are hardest on women, and that is not our fault. And I think that's a really important point to make. This is not us consciously saying we want to be nasty people and we want to make bad comments and we want to have bad thoughts. It is such internalized misogyny because of the world that, and the structures that we live in. And I think that's an important point to note first. I read a really interesting piece in The Atlantic from 2014, and it was called The Confidence Gap, which is also a book of the same name written by Caddy Kay and Claire Shipman. And in an extract in The Atlantic, they wrote about what is, you know, the male-female confidence gap. They wrote, we began to talk with other highly successful women hoping to find instructive examples of raw, flourishing female confidence. But the more closely we looked, the more we instead found evidence of its shortage. They basically wrote an entire book about how women have an intense confidence shortage. And I don't think many of us have unbridled confidence in the things that we do and the way that we are because we're taught we're not allowed to. For a long time, I thought I was a pretty confident person. I mean, hell, we started this podcast because we were confident people. Like from surface level, it would appear that we would have all the confidence in the world to come and do this job. But I have come to a massive realization in the last kind of few weeks or few months that my confidence is probably the lowest it's ever been and my confidence has never actually been that high that I kind of do have really serious issues with self-doubt and self-esteem. And I think it comes down to the fact that the world tells us we should shrink and be smaller and take up less space. And I think when that is the case, when you look around, you assume that everybody else has confidence that you don't have. And when you are riddled with self-doubt and issues with self-esteem and you're plagued with self-critical thoughts, I do think that breeds jealousy and jealousy breeds these things that we're talking about. I think absolutely. I think for so long I convinced myself that sexism was something that's perpetrated exclusively by men and experienced exclusively by women. But the more I grow and mature, the more I realize sexism is something that's perpetrated by women and men. And that's really important for us to all sit with. I think I saw this really clearly this week and I don't want anyone to take this analogy the wrong way because I just want to give it on face value. I'm in a couple of podcast Facebook groups that are not our own and I stumbled across a thread where a bunch of women who would call themselves feminists, it's a very feminist heavy and positive, which I love, Facebook group, but they were talking about how irritating they find it when a certain Instagram model, in fact, a bikini model, an Instagram influencer, 
sexualizes herself on Instagram. They said they find it so frustrating when she poses for male attention and that she should stop doing it because it's bad for all women. And I found that so interesting because the host of the podcast who moderates the very group that they were talking in does the same thing in that she does post provocative images of herself. And I love that about her. She embraces her sexuality and she owns it. And I think that's incredible. Although it might not be for me, it's wonderful for her and it's what she wants to do. And what I found interesting was this podcast host interjected and she said, hang on, why are you guys fine with me sexualizing myself on Instagram with me saying, yes, I'm posting a thirst trap and I want men to comment and I want to have guys slide into my DMs and I'm feeling horny. Why is it fine for me to do that? But a woman that you are physically threatened by because you know she's so objectively hot, why is it not okay for her? And I think that was such an interesting point for me to see internalized misogyny play out in real time. And I don't think there's another way around it. In the past, you and I have even discussed Emrata embracing her sexuality online. And I do regret the way we discussed that because now if I think back to those segments and the way I considered Emrata, at the basis of what I was feeling and what I was thinking was a tiny kernel of jealousy that blossomed into quite a hateful feeling towards Emrata. I don't care that Emrata takes her clothes off. I don't care that any woman takes her clothes off. I care when I feel like I'm inferior to someone. And when Emrata does that, I feel inferior. That says nothing about her and everything about me. The Emrata one is so interesting because as you were telling me that story, all I could think about is how I've thought and felt and spoken about Emrata in the past. And I think I have a lot of work to do when it comes to the work that I've done on her, the writing that I've done on her, because I think you're right. Why am I actually annoyed by this? I think that's a question I've never really asked myself. Why am I concerned by this? I think that's a better question because it does feel to me that I might have been full of faux concern for a long time. And I think a lot of this does come down to faux concern. Like, am I actually invested in the issue that I'm pretending I'm invested in? Or is my concern what I'm saying it is? Or is it something else entirely? There was a really interesting story in the New York Times a while ago by Emily Gordon. And she was talking about, you know, how prevalent this idea is that that women can be often the ones to bring other women down. And she said, it doesn't have to look like open and transparent hate. It often does. She said, instead of openly hating women, I used hate sneaky little sister and told myself I pitied women who worked hard to be conventionally attractive, who had jobs that utilized their feminine wiles, who were too girly. Poor her. I'd cluck at parties, wanting attention so badly. I wonder who hurt her. Let's discuss this art rock band I saw last week. Self-promotion check, degradation of rivals check. So she was saying a core part of this is this degradation of rivals. It doesn't have to look like like intense hate or open hate. It can look like she said, hate sneaky little sister. And I loved that term. I think that's awesome. I loved that story as well. And I had that paragraph written down in my own notes. I'm mad that you got to it first. (laughs) Zara, another story I have on this actually has to do with me and you in that I have shared on this podcast and in interviews that we've done before that my first impression of you was not a great one. And that had nothing to do with you. I found you to be a competitor oh and I felt so, I felt so competitive with you from the second we met. And we were both interns and we were both kind of vying for the same position within the company. And instead of thinking, wow, he's this really intelligent, awesome person, I thought, okay, she's smarter than I am and she is direct enemy number one. And I didn't let us be friends for probably six months because I saw you as competition. And I hate that. Like, I hate that I did that for so long. Yeah, it is a really interesting example. And I remember, I mean, we've spoken about it so extensively since then, like this is hardly a surprise to me. Let's have a counseling session right now. (laughs) 
know it, we don't need one, but I think it's an incredibly common experience. I mean, this entire segment is built around that exact idea and that exact experience of yours. I do want to say, if anyone's doubting this, if anyone's thinking we're using a lot of anecdotes and not a lot of research, let me bring that into the piece right now. There is a host of research all about why women are more hypercritical of other women than men are of men or even men are of women in many instances. There is a fascinating study to come out of France from 2015. Basically, researchers set up one online university class where they had two different groups. One group was given a professor who operated under a female name. The other class was given the exact same professor who operated under a male name. What the researchers found was that all students favored the male professor over the female professor, despite them being the exact same, the only difference being their name. What was really interesting was that female students were far more critical of the woman professor than the man professor on everything from her personality to her competency, even getting their results back on time when there was no discrepancy in the rate of return when there was no discrepancy in how quickly their assessments were returned compared to the male professor, they were returned at the exact same rate. The only difference was the gender and the effect that that had on how students viewed that professor was profound and saddening, particularly when those students were other women. In 2008, there was a study published in the British Journal of Management that found that female employees are more likely to reject female bosses and be highly critical of them when those female bosses behave in a traditional managerial way or, quote, like a man. However, those same people had no issue with men adopting those traditional managerial traits. The main difference was they expected their female bosses to be likable and they let their male bosses get away with far, far more. Dr. Peggy Drexler has a PhD and is a research psychologist and has done some fascinating work into looking into why women form a negative view of other women in their lives, including friends, co-workers, and the people around you, far more freely and quickly than men do of men. And I've been thinking about this. I think women tend to be so hypercritical of other women for a few reasons. I think because we are still so underrepresented in public positions, whether that's politics or the media, there is an intense laser focus on any woman who does ascend to those really lofty positions in highly visible career paths. I think when a woman gets to the top of her field and experiences that really overwhelming success, some of us will applaud, but many of us will take out a microscope and a pinprick and decide to point out all the reasons why perhaps she shouldn't be the one to be there. I think because there are so few women at the top of their fields, we expect those women who do make it to represent all of us, to never offend us, to be the perfect woman. And it is so unreasonable because a woman who is successful will never appeal to every single woman. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. I wondered as you were talking then, what side of the fence you sit on if you are the one that sits and blindly applauds or if you are one that kind of gets your microscope out because I think I'm kind of got one foot in both camps at the same time and that can also be true. Well, I think that's – I'm really glad you asked that. I've got a really good quote that I think sums up how I feel about it personally. This is by Tara Moore. She wrote Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create and Lead. In any society, the people within a marginalised or low-power group end up taking out that pain and anger on each other 
through in-group conflict. Women today are grappling with our own form of this. To the extent that women are each not fully empowered ourselves, that we are still denying our own dreams or treating ourselves harshly, we will criticize, attack, and try to sabotage other women because it rattles us to see in them what we have not permitted in ourselves. We will lash out if we see something emerging or expressed in another woman that we have squashed in ourselves. We won't wholeheartedly support another woman following her passion if we've talked ourselves out of following our own. We won't support her idealism and desire to change the world if we treat our own idealism with judgment or harshness. We can't celebrate success, ambition, assertiveness in another woman if we are curtailing any of those things in ourselves. That's really good, isn't it? And I think, I mean, I can see a lot of that in myself, just recognizing my own insecurities and then sort of kind of doing the backwards math of working out what I've been annoyed by in the past too. It's really interesting, Mish. I have been told in the past that it's been annoying how I've spoken about my partner on here that I might be too glowing. And I think that's been leveled at you too. And it's a really interesting criticism to be told you're annoying because you speak nicely about someone because I don't really think about how I speak about him. I don't really consider or analyze how I'm going to. I just do. It's a healthy relationship. And I I guess I would hope that people would hope that I had one. And likewise Mm -hmm. with you, like I would hope that people would hope that you were in a healthy relationship. But just because you speak positively about one thing doesn't mean every relationship we have is healthy. I've had some terrible ones that have fallen over in the last few years that have left pretty lasting damage. But it's made me wonder, do we have to expose every part of our lives that is wrong and unattractive and painful in order to be liked? Like sometimes it feels like that's our formula. And also, would it be annoying for a man to speak kindly of his partner? There's goddamn like montages made of John Krasinski or whatever his name is when he speaks nicely about Emily Blunt. Like I just I just really found that a, a, like a curious conversation starter. I've really struggled with that feedback. I mean, some people might think that's constructive feedback. I don't consider it that way because as someone who has listened to so many podcast duos, whether it is Tommy Jacket and Josh Jansen on The Daily Talk Show or it is Hamish and Andy on The Hamish and Andy Show, they talk about their female partners all the time and they are never called out for it. In fact, I love hearing people talk about their partners. At the end of the day, if we want to say something nice about our partners, I would hope that that would be taken on face value and not be criticized or treated as something that is annoying. Yeah, the annoying thing's really interesting. But then I, I guess just to do a 180 again, I'm thinking about the things that I've felt annoyed at in the past and they're completely unfair. I think when I spoke about that article in The Atlantic, The Confidence Gap before, it kind of was a, a real trigger point for me because I thought I've got so annoyed with people on Instagram who seem far more confident than I and I would just put it in the bucket of boasting. And I said to you this morning, I'm starting to realize why I've got annoyed at these people in the past and it's got nothing to do with them and everything to do with the fact that my confidence isn't that high. And if my confidence isn't that high, of course, it's going to feel jarring when you see somebody else that's more confident than you and really confident in their abilities. And that's a really goddamn good thing. It is. And you know what? I will tell Steph that I've said this before this episode goes out, but I remember distinctly the day that I found out that Steph Claire Smith is the same age as me. It was her 21st birthday and I had no idea she was 21. And I remember the sinking feeling in my stomach that day, being like, this woman is so successful and she's so hot and I'm the same age as her. And I remember that dawning realization of being like, wow, I'm I'm just never going to be as hot as Steph Claire Smith. I will never be a bikini model. I will never be someone who is lauded for their looks. Not that I ever expected that, but I think it was just that art of comparison that we so often fall victim to that for me to still remember that day 
years ago and remember how sick I felt in my stomach learning that she was the same age as me is really interesting because I think age comes in here too, that we tend to be hypercritical of younger women. And I'm guilty of that. I think we even said in the Florence Pugh discussion how annoying it was that she's Mm. only 23 or 24. And I think that's interesting. I'm not sure men would make the same comment because I don't think men have grown up being pitted against each other and seeing other women as such an intense form of competition. Well, that's the thing. And I hope we've been really clear through this entire conversation. And I will say it again, it it is the way that we're raised and the structures that we're raised within. It is not us personally trying to create these thoughts or muster up these feelings. A lot of it, most of it is completely unconscious. There was an interesting study in the Harvard Business Review that found while men and women both benefit from having a network of well-connected peers across different groups, women who have an inner circle of close female contacts are more likely to land executive positions with greater authority and higher pay, while there was no link found for the success of men in terms of gender composition of their inner circles. The reason they argued for this was because women trying to rise up into leadership face cultural and systematic hurdles that make it really hard to advance. We know that already. And the study suggested that a way for women to overcome some of these hurdles was having an inner circle of other women. And I have joked and laughed and denigrated the term women supporting women in the past because I found it kind of naff and overused. But when you read a study that says that women will succeed, all of us will succeed more if we have an inner circle of mentors who are women, it's pretty hard to argue with. Yeah, I think the same. I used to eye roll at that. And I think that's because my own internal misogyny was going so unchecked. And as you said, it's not our fault. But what we can do today and every day going forward is make sure we are checking in with ourselves and make sure we are asking that really difficult question, why am I annoyed? Why do I hate this woman? If she hasn't done anything awful, why do we feel so intensely towards her? And I really encourage people to do that because I'm not even overstating this. The last 24 hours of really investigating this has been great for my mind in that I feel like I will be a more considerate, supportive woman going forward. For as much as I've called myself a feminist in the past, I think so many of these ingrained ideas about womanhood means and how womanhood should be expressed have affected the way I've spoken on this podcast, the way I've written about women online, the way I have infiltrated people's lives in a negative way like Chrissy Swan. And I think everyone can take something really powerful from this if you acknowledge that you might have some internal bias against the women that you see in the media, that you meet in real life, that you work with. Perhaps we can all push against that and build a better path for all of us. Yeah, and props to Jamila Jamil for opening up this conversation and putting herself and her face at the forefront of it, Mish. Like it's never easy being the outspoken one starting these conversations, but it reminds me of that thing that you said a very, very long time ago on the podcast, which I always come back to, which is examine your annoyance. Examine all of our annoyance. I think every time we feel annoyed about anyone, the most powerful thing I've found I can do is use that line of yours, which is like, examine why I'm annoyed about this. Because if I can't come up with an answer, then maybe it's a system that's greater than I. Please come into our Facebook group and talk to us about this. We would love to hear about the women in the public eye that you're only just realizing now that you have been critical of or hateful towards and you have no idea why. We would love to hear some of your stories because we think it's really important, whether they're from Australia or internationally. Zara, I think that is all we have time for. That is all we've got time for. Thank you so 
much for listening and supporting us as always. We are really enjoying and so thankful of how many of you are popping us on your Instagram stories and sharing how you're listening while we're in isolation. So many isolated walks and quarantine at home listens, but we love seeing them all, Mish. We absolutely do. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. See you then.